edition. This is Arthur. That is Isaac. We are continuing our series, 007 and Counting, uh, where we are going to review several uh, classic James Bond films leading up to the actual Fingers crossed. 9.9% Fingers crossed. <laughs> of No Time to Die, uh, Daniel Craig's last foray as uh, uh, MI6 agent. James Bond um, should so we be releasing this. October the 9th in the U.S. October 8th in the U.S. A, a week before in the U.K. And we should acknowledge that last year we did 007 and counting and we did. Um, how do we do it? We did. Oh, we did all the Craig films and yeah. we did the Craig films. You guys should go check the catalog. It's on the, on the thread um, wherever you listen to our podcast. You can check out the previous 007 and counting episodes and you know the obviously we won't go through the whole epic you know odyssey of this film of no time to die but obviously because of the pandemic things got delayed um and the movie hasn't come out so we're hoping that it comes out october 8th as planned and to celebrate that we're doing 007 and counting again but we're doing it a different way we're doing it how how are we doing it this time arthur we are Going through several Bond films uh, throughout different eras. So we've got a Dalton film in there. We've got a Brosnan film. We've got a Lazenby. We've got a couple of Connery films. And we've got a couple of Roger Moore films. Uh, Right, but we're not not telling them like what order, because we're not, I mean, I think you would kind of expect us to go chronologically where we're not doing that. We are going to pick and choose I don't even know if I would say our favorite Bond films. I don't think it's necessarily our favorite Bond films. It's just like films, Bond films of interest and kind of celebrating getting ready for No Time to Die in a way that's a little bit unique. So 007 and counting with a twist. Um, Would you say that we are celebrating diversity? Yeah, we're celebrating diversity and inclusion. (laughs) Over here, that's how we do it at Mad Unreal, celebrating (laughs) diversity and inclusion. Um, and so, yeah, these these films, we're not going to tell you guys, you know, exactly. I don't even think I'll, maybe we'll announce, I guess, before, you know, a couple of days before the episode drops, which one is coming up. So you guys can actually watch before or watch with us as you're listening to the show. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, every Friday from now until the release of double or, uh, excuse me, of No Time to Die is a special episode of Mad Unreal called 007 and Counting. So we're we're excited about it. So if I could, I just want to briefly run through how we are going to segment each one of these episodes. Um, we will start by uh, giving a few mad facts, uh, kind of looking at the state of the James Bond franchise prior to the film that we're going to discuss. Um, then we will talk about the pre-title sequence of that film leading into the opening theme song. Uh then we'll move to Bond himself uh, with our section Rated Bond, where we rate the portrayal of Bond by that actor, uh, everything from his clothing and attitude and the decisions that he makes, um, just determine whether or not he's great in this film. 
Um, then we move to the women versus the villains of the film, uh, the so-called Bond girls and um, the villains and see who was a better match to to the films. Did the, the Bond women, were they more uh, uh, memorable or relevant to what went down in the film and storyline or were the villains, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the victors in, in that context? Uh, and then, uh, of course, we'll probably have some last words. And then I will be interrogated. <laughs> By Isaac. Q, Q and A question trivia. and Arthur. It's the return of the great trivia, Mad Unreal Trivia, question and Arthur. Um, and we'll go over the rules before we could dive into that. But let me say, Arthur acquitted himself uh, nicely, I think, in the first round of this in 007 and counting last year. He did really nicely at the beginning before I knew who I was dealing with. And then when I knew who I was dealing with, I doubled down and um, things got a little bit um, shaky for Arthur there towards the end. But We'll see how he does today. So, Arthur, what's what is the film? What's our first film? What's what first what first foray are we making into the Bond universe as we get ready for No Time to Die? We're going to discuss the debut of Roger Moore as James Bond 007 with uh, the 1973 release of Live and Let Die. Um, kind of a favorite of mine. It's a real for me. It's like a popcorn movie. Mm-hmm. version of James Bond and um, it's also the beginning of the era that I was exposed uh, to James Bond for the first time um, this, not know, with this film but this is memorable this is the last I just realized this is the last James Bond film that came out before I was born this is, mm. this is the one that came out before I was born and then on the other side of that coin once Daniel Craig leaves the role of James Bond after no time to die yeah that'll be the last time i'm younger <laughs> than james bond assuming that i don't get some old ass man to play james bond <laughs> after craig lee assuming they're going to go back to like you know some 30 or 35 year old mm-hmm. it'll be the last time that you know have you thought about that like that'll be the last time james bond is older than me you know yeah That's no i haven't weird. thought about that and yeah i certainly appreciate <laughs> me bringing it up <laughs> you bringing that up mm-hmm. So this, um, but this film, so Live and Let Die came out. Were you? Let me ask you. I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump right in, but just really quickly. No, let's jump. Let's get to it. Were you aware of Live and Let Die when you were when it came? I mean, you were very no. young, like you were a couple years old. I no. think. You know, so no. did you? No. So you weren't aware of it when it came out. No, I wasn't okay. aware of it. Um, okay. I can't. I can't truthfully say that I was aware of the song, which we'll get into uh, uh, pretty soon. Um, but it's likely that I was because it was a very, very popular song on the radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, I no, I was, I was, I was deep into Kermit the Frog. <laughs> right, when this we'll came give, out. coming up on our Mad Unreal deep dive into the Muppets, which will be coming out soon. Um, so you, so okay, so this is the beginning of an era, though. This is uh, of a new era. So give us mm-hmm. the mad, give us the mad facts behind um, Live and Let Die. Well, uh, as I stated before, first film, first Bond film to feature Roger Moore. Um, granted, uh, George Lazenby played the character in Her Majesty's Secret Service, but otherwise, Sean Connery was, in fact, James Bond. And he was actually offered the role um, for Live and Let Die. But after doing Diamonds Are Forever, the previous film, 
which mm-hmm. actually was successful at the box office. He decided no more. He was like, done, done, done. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the famously, second, he for the said that he time. would never <laughs> play James Bond again, only mm-hmm. to recant those words uh, about 10 years later. Um, the Eon Studios, the, they wanted to re... I mean, I won't go so far to say they wanted to remix the character, but they did want to shake things up. And they wanted to present Bond um, to a new audience and and um, uh, to a new market. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that even though the same director and writing team uh, were brought on, uh, Live and Let Die was directed by Guy Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the screenplay by Tom uh, Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz, yeah. Am I saying his name right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was still, uh, yeah. I think one of the things that's so important is that <laughs> the, cause like you mentioned the Connery thing and obviously this film went to great lengths to give Bond, give Roger Moore's Bond his own identity separate from yeah. John, John Connery's Bond. But I think what's also important is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, so that was the first departure from the Connery Bond and since then you know at the time it wasn't i think it it did decent but at the time it was it wasn't considered a success you know whereas Mm -hmm. now when we look back on majesties many bond fans will say it's their favorite film in the series or one of their favorite films in the entire series um so it's you know it's, it's grown in popularity tremendously but i think what's important though in the context of live and let die is that many of the lessons quote-unquote lessons that the producers learned with on her majesties played a part when they you know approached live and let die so they found success in diamonds and they just carried over um like you mentioned before we started recording the same uh director screenwriter and the same tonality that was in diamonds they carried that over into live and let die rather then, um, you know, tr- go back to the more seriousness, the serious tone of on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and then also, you know, they gave Roger his own identity as far as like different tropes, which we'll get into and dropping mm-hmm. certain tropes. Um, mm-hmm. So there was just you could see some of the impact of Majesty's on Live and Let Die, which I think is very interesting. But this was yeah, this but- was huge. You can't underplay this was this was major, man. I mean, Connery and Diamonds if you go back and look at the promotional materials for diamonds, Mm -hmm. it was all Sean Connery is James Bond. That was their tagline. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Sean Connery Mm -hmm. is James because they were, you know, he's that Lazenby stuff. Yeah. We're not going to talk about that. Sean Connery is back, you know? Yeah. And so now here, like you just said, Connery turned down the role. So now here you have to bring in a new bond. And And they're really, you can tell they're going all in with Roger Moore because of what you just described. Mm-hmm. Some things that Roger did that are of his own bond um, identity and things that he, you know, hung on to his carryover, mm-hmm. but also dropped, you know, mm-hmm. completely. And it did retain kind of the uh, the silliness of Diamonds and Pearls. Diamonds, good God. <laughs> Freudian Prince yeah. reference. <laughs> Can't seem to... <laughs> Go ahead. Live and Let Die did retain some of the silliness of Diamonds Are Forever, um, but even more so, it 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 tried to it tried to capitalize on a wave of what are known as black exploitation films that um, 
were prevalent in the early 1970s, most notably Shaft and Gordon Parks's uh, Gordon Parks's Shaft, but uh, also Superfly, mm-hmm. starring Ron O'Neill. Um, and I think that by doing that, uh, it was an attempt to attract more of a black audience and grow the appeal of James Bond. Um, but because the screenplay and even the idea to do this was through English eyes, you know, it is, it's, there's some fantastically stupid elements to <laughs> how this story is played out. Um, up to and including the notion that the entirety of Black Harlem in New York is like in on the plan (laughs) of the villain. (laughs) They all work for the villain. A true monolith (laughs) out here. Right. Right. Those black people, all the same, all working together. All the same, even the shoe shine dude. He's everybody's on, everybody's on the same page, yeah, right? Right. Even the, the shoe shine dude. They all work for this cat, and they right. They, and and Bond is the only white man in Harlem at that time. You know he's, exactly. He's, somebody at one point, one character said he's st- he's like a cue ball. That's <laughs> what he said. He's like a, <laughs> he's like a cue ball. <laughs> he's like a cue ball rolling down Lenox Avenue, I guess. So yeah, it was um that was interesting. So no, let me ask you this though: what? Because I think that. The and before I know we need to get into to, to the actual breakdown, but just really quickly, the whole black exploitation angle, I think, as you're watching this film from a 2021 angle with our 2021 eyes, especially for younger people who have no experience, you know, who, you know, mm-hmm. black exploitation is like some esoteric something. How do you you know, how does that affect your viewing? You know, what I'm saying if you're not. If you're not aware of black exploitation, or maybe you are aware, you're not into it. You do. You, maybe yeah. you disapprove of it. You know, how does that affect your viewing of this this film as a, you know, as a piece of, um, um, and almost like artifact, artifactual. You know, what I'm saying it's like this. It's this piece of thing from the mid '70s where this was what was going on at that time, uh, cinematically. You know, so how how do, how do you think that affects your viewing? Well, I I did watch the film. Um, a week ago at the time of this recording but uh, you know it wasn't it, it, it wasn't like there were black people that were cooning mm-hmm. or you know dancing for the white man mm-hmm. but it was the notion that the this age of black empowerment was completely centered around the drug trade mm-hmm it was completely that right. this whole enterprise right. was not surrounded by you know um, developing some nerve agent. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to upset to upset the white power establishment, yeah. you know, in the United States and in in the diaspora and the black diaspora. You know, mm-hmm. it had to do with cornering the market on dope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a community that clearly was you know, ravaged by the social structure of the United States. Like, mm-hmm. all the scenes in Harlem were in just, like, one level above slum. There, there's a there's an action sequence that takes place literally in a vacant lot. 
yeah, trash on the ground and everything. Right, so it it's sort like of like look like something like a bomb just went off, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, but I, I think though, because you said okay, it's completely centered around. And as you were struggling to find the word, my mind would just went to a center around exploitation, you know, a center around exactly what it's called, you know, black exploitation. Right. right. And a lot of that is built around caricature. You know, it's like it's, it's basically a to your like you said, a fantastical representation of certain elements of black culture at that time. And even now, you know, so there's a, even like you mentioned through if a white viewer were watching this, they may make the mistake of thinking X. I think in 2021, younger black viewers will make some of the same mistakes, you know, thinking, was this really what, you know, the 70s looked like, you know, and it was like, yeah, that's a good point. There is some element of it. But again, remember the name of this, you know, the name of this genre was, you know, exploitation, black exploitation. And there's, you know, so there's I I think, you know, and we don't want to get into a whole diatribe on that. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, But I think that. Some of that, as I was watching this, I watched it last night, and as I, as I was watching this, and it had been some years. I haven't seen this film in probably about five or six years, um, all the way through. Mm-hmm. But as I was watching it, I was like, you know, yeah, this is. I was trying to put my mind in that place of if this was my first time seeing this, you know, and I was say twenty, you know, twenty years mm-hmm. old or whatever. Now in twenty, how would I view this? You know, um, would I be comfortable? You know, with some of these things. Mm-hmm. And the answer for a lot of it, there's a lot of things. No. And the some of the stereotypes, you know, like you said, just everybody knowing each other, you know, that was kind of like it's, it's Harlem, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a community, but it's like, why are all these people working for the same for this yeah. one dude? And it's like at one point I didn't know if the CIA dude was he talking to the brothers on the street? Were they CIA people? It's like, where what's mm-hmm. what's going You know, and it was it was kind of unclear. But I think that that's it, bottom line. I think it is important to ask these questions and have this type of dialogue in the context of this film, because this film is, you know, a lot of Bond films capitalize on the zeitgeist and what was happening cinematically and culturally at the moment. Right. This film does that, you know, this is what was going on in the seventies. Um, I've never read, excuse me, live and let die the book, um, Mm -hmm. which was written, I Mm -hmm. believe in the fifties or late early sixties or late fifties, I believe. So I've never read the book. So I don't know how steeped in black culture it was and, and knowing Ian Fleming, um, as a human being, I can only imagine, you know, I, I can presume that there are some harsher stereotypes and maybe even worse than stereotypes in the book. But at the time of the making of this film, um, obviously, you know, this is what was going on. And they brought this into the movie to appeal. Right. Not I don't know. It probably would take a film historian to come on the show and give this a better explanation or better analysis. I don't know if it was for where the producers was Covey Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, where they thinking we need to get more black viewers. I don't know if that's what it was. I think maybe it was a um, kind of a, a let's kill two birds with one stone. You know, we can get some of these viewers who are into black exploitation, mm-hmm. but we also got the bond viewers, you know, that we know are going to yeah. carry over. So it could have been a situation like that, but that's, it's, it's interesting. I just wanted to get your take on that. Cause I think that um, sometimes we, you know, as we have some of these conversations, especially about some of these older bond films, it just helps to kind of look at that, the era and what was going on um, and put it in that context and kind of look at it from a different point of view. Yeah. I mean, I would be more deliberate in explaining how this really isn't a real depiction to my youngest daughter, mm-hmm. you know, who doesn't have any idea of what things were like in, you know, the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, for the points that you were making. Um, I don't, and I agree with you. I don't, I don't necessarily feel that, that, that Salzman and Broccoli were thinking, oh, let's expand the black audience specifically. But I do think that they were trying to get a younger audience mm-hmm. that, which around this time was a mixture between both whites and blacks to see, you know, a film like this, particularly if they quote unquote saw themselves in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree, agree. And also, one more thing before we jump into pre-titles. Um, it's also important to note that uh, Roger Moore himself, he was already famous. You know, it wasn't a George Lazenby situation where he was mm-hmm. a complete unknown. He mm-hmm. had done, you know, The Saint, uh, the television show. Um, he had some films. Um, the Persuaders, I believe, was the name of one he was really, or I think that was a television series as well. Um, but he was famous in the UK, you know, especially. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. was a known quantity that they were bringing into it. Um, and I think that's just important to note again, you know, thinking about Mad Facts before this film was released, what was the what was the atmosphere? Um, so it wasn't as if, you know, the Bond, who's going to be the new Bond? It wasn't as if that reveal happened and it was like, OK, here comes some another cat that we have no idea what he's capable of. Yeah. Um, Roger was a known quantity. All right, let's get into uh, the pre-titles um, and the and the song. What did you, Arthur, what did you think about the pre-title sequence, um, which is unique, a very unique pre-title sequence? Um, what did you think about it? You know, actually, I, this is one of my favorite pre-title sequences in, in any Bond film. Um, part of the reason is because you don't see James Bond in it at all. And the way that it's set up, it's set up in that you see three killings, three separate killings, three different locations, and you don't know who's behind them. And in each case, each killing is like very elaborate. Um, first one being uh, takes place at the United Nations in New York City, where mm-hmm. uh, seemingly the ambassador of the United of the UK, who we find out later is the secret agent. It was. It was UK representative, but I, he was actually an agent. All of them, all three of the guys killed in the beginning of the film were Secret Service agents. They weren't double O's, but they were agents yeah. of the Secret Service, the UK Secret Service. So, yeah, the, the big guy at the uh, at the um, UN, he was an agent. Yeah. What did you think about the cat killed by the snake, though? Because, come on, <laughs> let's that, be real. Well, that, that was, was sort of that, that was, was the <laughs> most over the top. It, it had it had kind of a it had kind of a King Kong vibe to it in terms of. It had a How? 1940 King Kong vibe to it because there was the snake bit him and they didn't even bother to put any like blood or anything. It was just like, I did notice that. Did they run? Was that the exact moment where the production budget, like they just ran out of, they was like, we have no, can we go get some blood? No, there is no money. It was like, <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, he was either bit or he was frightened to death. <laughs> he just got scared. He just passed out. He could just passed out. He's actually still alive. He's, you know, tell James he's still alive because he didn't die. That was not an actual snake bite. But okay, so you you enjoyed those. The, you, I think you enjoyed the drama around those three deaths and what it set up. Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed the attempt at 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 being like really over the top in terms of like how creatively can we, you know, kill these people. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of like ramped up. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do want to get your thoughts on the funeral procession because that (laughs) of the three, that was probably the best one. That was the best one. And it was also interesting to me again, watching this now 
I can't because I can't remember the first time I saw Live and Let Die. And mm-hmm. I don't know if when I first saw Live and Let Die, was I aware of Norlean tradition? You know, I didn't know yeah. if I knew about Second Line. You know, I didn't know if I knew Me about too. Right. how right. they, you know, how know the funeral procession is in New Orleans as opposed to other places. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm guessing if I saw this film, you know, when I was very young, I'm, I'm, I, I, had, I had no idea. So I probably thought that second line was, oh, they were celebrating because they just killed that guy, not knowing that, no, that's what happens at the funeral procession. Um, and it's, it, later on, another character, I forget who it was, um, or maybe it was one of the breakdowns. You know what? It was a, it was a breakdown on a, a YouTube channel. I can't remember what it was, but I saw somebody else breaking down that scene and they didn't realize that that's the second line. So they were like, wow, they're really happy that they killed that guy. And it's like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not what that's about. But it was very, um, it was very elaborate. Um, it was interesting for me that later on in the film, we see the brother CIA agent. Apparently he gets killed the same way, but they never follow up on that and tell us for certain if that's what happened. Um, but yeah, I thought it was very creative. Um, and then I think it goes, yeah. So from after those three deaths, we go right into the title sequence. Let me say this though. So this was the first time we hadn't do. This is not Q and A. This is we're not going to get into question Arthur yet. But yeah. let me just ask yeah. you a quick trivia question. Do you remember the last? This was the second time that Bond was not in the was not in the pre-title sequence. Only the second time. This is the eighth film. This is the second time this happened. Do you remember the first time it happened? I do not. It was, it's kind of a trick question, but it's, 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 it's accurate. It was from Russia with love in from Russia with love. Red Grant is training, right? He's training and he's hunting a guy who we think is Bond. Right. But then it's revealed. The mask comes off. It's like, no, it's just some dude dressed as Bond. Mm -hmm. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Red um, from Russia with love, but it was, this is the first, so I mean, Roger, or excuse me, Sean Connery was technically in that sequence, but James Bond was not in that sequence. So this is only mm-hmm. the second. This is this is the second time this happened with Live and Let Die. Um, so what did you think? Okay, so I, I and you know I, for me personally, I like the pre-title sequence. I prefer pre-title sequences that are one featuring Bond and two are kind of their own little movie. Like it's. I'm fine with it being connected to the plot. And I actually like that. I liked how this one, it showed us the main villain immediately. We saw the main villain and the main bond woman. We didn't know it at the time, but that's, they showed Kananga and solitaire within minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. And so before we even meet the new James Bond, which Mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. And I like the fact that those three deaths set up the stakes for the rest of the film. Really, you know, they get everything rolling. Um, so I liked it. So, but what did you think about? Okay, so then we get into the title to the to the to the credits. What did you think about the song? What do you what have you've had? You know, what forty some years to think about right. um, Paul McCartney and Wings's uh, and Linda McCartney's um, "Live and Let Die." So, what are your thoughts on this? What everybody else says is an iconic jam. Yeah, this is one of the best. You know, and like everybody's probably top three. You know, best slash most famous. Bond openings. Um, it was not not really the return of Paul McCartney, but it having Paul McCartney do this theme really was a big deal, mm-hmm. and it did turn into a vehicle for his new band Wings, who had already had an album, but had not that album had not performed well. So this song, attributed to Paul McCartney and Wings was recorded 
during the sessions of their second album, Red Rose Speedway, which did do better, the song being a reason for it, and also putting Paul McCartney, his name and and image out front, helped Wings go into the 1970s as a very, you know, successful rock band. Uh, It also was the reunification of Paul McCartney and uh, George Martin, the famed Mm. Beatles producer and engineer. Mm. And George Martin, who did all the orchestration, uh, went on to do the soundtrack for the film, Live and Let Die. The score. Thank you. Mm -hmm. First time Barry wasn't involved, I believe. First time John Barry wasn't involved in the score of a Bond Mm -hmm. film. I think it's no mistake that it had a very, I mean, obviously Paul McCartney and his, his history with the Beatles, of course, had a rock feel to it, but it had the same kind of feel that uh, the music from, say, Jesus Christ Superstar had, you know, mm. or Hair, where, um, or, or even a Who's Tommy, this very operatic mm. type of an opening for this, um, even mm. had a couple of, you know, faux Zydeco breaks in mm. the song, mm. you know, in the song too. Um, I, I, I know I've said I like this film, and, and, and I do like this film, but it, but it is a little difficult for me because I have, to, I have to compartmentalize a lot because I have to compartmentalize the fact that I'm looking at the depiction of black people um, in an exploitive way, um, but I'm setting limits to that, right? In other words, mm-hmm. Superfly shows black people in a very exploitive way, <laughs> you know, very right. exaggerated, you know, pimp element. Um, But it's rooted in fact. I mean, there was a segment of our community that dressed like that, looked like that, did those things. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And and we'll later talk about it. But even in Live and Let Die, you know, there are some there are some scenes that are actually very funny where, you know, where the black character really has a handle on the entire situation and makes Bond look like an idiot Mm -hmm. in the process, you know, Mm the title sequence follows the same kind of form where you know you see uh, a very uh, sexually exploitive portrayal of women mm-hmm. um half naked or fully naked you know shadowed by their silhouette um and you have black women mm-hmm. doing this in the title sequence and you know you and i both know that black women particularly from the islands um are looked at, you know, in a quote-unquote exotic type yeah, way. Been hypersexualized, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, 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 it's a film that I, I, I feel that I have to negotiate certain things at the risk of of compromising. Now, the song itself, though, you like the song? Yeah, I like the song. Okay, is it is it one of your top? If you had to do your top five, you know, Bond theme songs of all time. Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely in the it's definitely in the top five. I mean, it's not number one. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me though is that with the song, there is that almost there's that break that almost becomes a. It, it's you know there's several like um, Bond themes. You know, there's mm-hmm. the main Bond theme, of course. And then there's you got something else. You got something a little bit different with um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service um, in the beginning of that film. What what Barry did and that that the, that break almost feels like very Bondian to me. Like if they played it now in the Daniel Craig movie, mm-hmm. I would probably lose my mind in the theater because I'd be like, that's you know that's bringing back a very classic and um, very classic Bond thing that's kind of at the core of the character. 
And this song did the same thing with that. Dun, 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 that mm-hmm. you could you could take that and play it over a, an action sequence. You could update it a little bit, you know, just mm-hmm. just make it a little bit more modern. But you could have an orchestra play that in No Time to Die, and it would feel right to me. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. that dun, 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 it's so action oriented and so Bond. You know, it's yeah. like it's very. Um, I think, and that's you know, you take that out of this song, and I'm, I think the song is okay. But it's it, to me, it just takes it to um just the highest level and it's 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 one of my favorite bond themes because of that because it's so bondian you know it's Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. makes it very much something that is owned by bond the character so um as far as the title sequence stuff i agree with you it's it's notable because this is i think there's only one white woman in the entire title sequence you know the credit sequence i think there's only one um, I think everyone, every other female that you see is of African descent. And that's notable mm-hmm. because that's never happened. And I don't think it's happened since um, in the Bond franchise. I don't think it's been that predominantly black in, you know, in the title sequence. And so I, I, I feel what you're saying as far as the hypersexualization of um, black women, specifically of Caribbean, you know, in this context of Caribbean black women. I think that is, um, I, w- I will say though, in all fairness, we could say that about all the title sequences, you know, that feature women. Most of yeah. them are very, are you know, are strong, even if it has nothing to do with the plot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like these, you know, what they're showing in the title sequence is like taking an element of the plot, like, you know, oil fields or something like that in the world is mm-hmm. not enough. And then just dumping oil all over naked bodies, you know, naked <laughs> right. bodies. You know what I'm saying? So right. it's like, it's, you know, that hypersexualization is is a part of, um, the bond, uh, the bond kind of uh, brand, um, the, tape, the, the brand and the tapestry <laughs> of the series, and mm-hmm. I think it's only recently have you seen it kind of move a little bit away from that because I, I believe Inspector Bond himself is stripped, you know, and you see Daniel Craig, um, at least from the you know the torso, you know, mm-hmm. and just you know Shirtless, some of that, yeah. yeah, some of that sexualization is thrown on him, which I'm not saying that's the answer to do to what should what should happen, but um, I think it's notable. So, all right. So moving into rated bond, um, this is the section where we discuss how bond himself, um, was in this film, everything from his clothing, the attitude, his attitude, his decisions and more, how great or not great was he in this movie? So what is, what is your opinion on this being the, the premiere of Roger Moore's bond? How do you rate James Bond in this film? Not necessarily just Roger Moore. I'm talking about how do you rate James Bond in this movie? Uh, I I do rate this bond uh, pretty high. I think that the the shortcomings happen more so in the mix of his wardrobe. Mm. Um, for example, the scene where he arrives in uh, in New Orleans, comes off the plane. He's got the double-breasted suit, the gloves. Um, is just classic <laughs> Roger Moore Bond. He looked you know? good as hell, man. He looked really <laughs> I gotta, good. I saw he that. Really I, I'm not a fan of 70s fashion, but he still. I was like, that motherfucker looks good. You know, what yeah. I'm saying? He, he looks good as hell right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then you know he completely falls off the horse in that. <laughs> that you know what I'm talking about too. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. The powder blue denim. <laughs> and and white tank top uh-huh. uh uh outfit uh-huh. mm. 
that 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 he wears um in i think it's in the middle third i think it's in the second act that he wears this outfit Mm -hmm. um but then he kind of redeems himself toward the end where he's in you know the all back the black slacks the black turtleneck Mm -hmm. you know so so i i i I think that when he tries to i guess blend in to (laughs) the the crowd (laughs) Right. <laughs> he, he really doesn't it really doesn't work for him hmm. um yeah you know what as a as again i'm not a fan and you know jay our our, our brother and in, in, uh podcast arms broke it down to me one time about how 60s style why 60s style always feels very modern to us and always cool to us mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. is because of the cut of the suits and you know this mm-hmm. that he broke it down in a way that i can't i'm not sartorial like that but 70s style just really has never I just never have you know appreciated it because I just you know the the wider the the pants and the just everything the way it's cut is like Ooh, you know and the colors and I'm like I ain't with it but he you know I'll back up even before um the uh the double-breasted getting off the plane even at his flat when he throws on like this the robe and he just he looks very much like the suave you know english gentleman that we think mm-hmm. bond is you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying he looks roger moore more so sometimes connery had a connery looked very elegant and very suave but he kind of also looked like he probably came from a rougher background and then he got those clothes he got that mm-hmm. money kind of like mm-hmm. craig does you know yeah. mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. roger moore looks like the kind of the cat who was probably raised like that you know and i'm not saying one is better than the other obviously you know which one i would probably the proletariat cl- class is the one i more um uh, align with or you know um have a more interest in but bond's kind of snootiness you know that upper class type of up- upbringing it looks more appropriate with Roger Moore. You know, he seems like he comes from that place and clothing wise. Yeah. When they, when he gets out of bed and he puts on the little, you know, the, the, the uh, robe and then he gets on the plane and, you know, later on, like you said, and he's dipped in all black. Um, and there's some other, you know, brief moments. Cause he has a lot of wardrobe changes in this movie, man. He changes mm-hmm. clothes often, you know, like Bond mm-hmm. probably should, but he's, I think from a clothing standpoint, Despite the the um, <laughs> as you said, when he tries to blend in, you know, because um, early on in the film, when he goes into Harlem, he looks he, I mean, it's not just the color of his skin. He just looks completely different. Matter yeah. of fact, the only person who would look in those scenes, the only person who would look like him, although he's not in those scenes, would be Kananga. You know, saying him, he and Kananga kind of have the same style, you know, because Kananga is very elegantly dressed, too. Yeah, um, yeah. But when he walks when he walks into the Flay of Soul in Harlem, he looks like like he's about to um do everybody's taxes or something you know it's like he just looks right. he has that type of feel to him um but despite all that i would say rated bond in terms of clothing i give him a high rating in this film would you would you agree or no oh i would i mean the if it wasn't for the powder blue he'd be 100 <laughs> percent because that outfit just didn't work at all i mean it was like a powder blue denim waistcoat <laughs> with the bell-bottom pants high-waisted the bell-bottom players, pants yeah, yeah 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 and then like an undershirt under it he looked very relaxed though later on on the boat you know he was he was chilling um what about okay so what about though you know this is uh a new bond and his his to me his attitude was a, was a different obviously the way he carried himself was different than connery did you pick up on that at all uh yeah i mean he he I think it was an extension of what you were talking about, about like he was brought up in the snobbery 
of upper English class. Mm-hmm. And he carried that with him through pretty much every scene that he was in, every environment that he was in. And it, that worked for me because it, it was a consistency to, mm. to how, he was, how he was playing him. Um, I think that um, he never um, tried to be something that he wasn't. Um, here's another, you know, ironic comment for me. But even when he was dealing, like when he was in the Filet of Soul, mm-hmm. you know, or when he was in the, uh, the, the, the voodoo shop, I forget what the name of the Occult. shop was. <laughs> yes. I should have made that a kill, an, a kill question, Arthur. It was called O-O-H space cult. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good one. Occult. Yeah, got it. It's, you know, he always he always carried himself in a very, you know, in a very refined manner. Mm-hmm. Um, did he feel, let me ask you this, did he feel, oh, uh, before we get on that, just really quickly, the delivery, I think, of the iconic, you know, Bond, James Bond line, I think Roger killed it. It was, it was perfect. My name's Bond. James Bond. It, it was different than Connery's, you know, at the card table and Dr. No delivery. Mm-hmm. It was different than that. And Roger delivers it when Solitaire asks him, you know, I don't even know if she asked him. Did she ask she him? She doesn't that? ask him. <laughs> he just announces himself, you know. He, that's, that's it. It's an announcement. He announces right, he's, himself. He's like, you know, Bond. And then he pauses, looks in the other room, James Bond. You know, he just mm-hmm. says it with such, again, some of that upper class, like, you know, who's that's like, kind of like, who's this guy I think he is? But he... He's Bond, James Bond. So I think he, the way he delivered, he owned it in a way that said, this is mine. You know, this character is now mine. Um, what did you think, though? Did, did he feel dangerous to you? I wrote that in my notes. Did he feel, did you get an element of danger from this Bond in, in Live and Let Die? I actually did not. Mm-hmm. And um, there are very few occasions in Roger Moore films where I got the the sense that, I got the sense that bond was dangerous. Mm. Um, Connery, I felt, was dangerous. Like, at any point, he was a trained assassin. Mm. Um, Roger Moore, not so much. He proved himself to be, you know, a trained assassin. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and I don't know if that's because Moore played the character in a more um, approachable way. Mm. I, um, I, I think I, that... I, I think that... I think it was more... First of all, he was funnier. He was very yeah. funny. He was funnier than Connery. And it sounded both, natural. It sounded, it sounded natural. natural yeah, whereas Con- Connery, it sounded a little forced sometimes. Sometimes Connery has that... He had that charm definitely with, with women. And he had the... He had the one-liners. He had the quips. They're usually always sexualized, you know, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for Roger Moore, he was just generally, he was just funny. You know, generally, it was like the moment when uh, Rosie finds the hat, you know, on the bed and <laughs> Bond comes in and picks it up. And he says, nothing to be, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, there's nothing to be afraid of. Evidently, this is a hat that belonged to a small-headed man of meager means who lost a fight with a chicken. And he just says it. <laughs> And it's uh-huh. like the shit was funny as hell. And it's like it wasn't it wasn't a sexualized anything. It was just his quips mm-hmm. are just very natural. And it's almost as if you get like, man, I, I think Roger Moore must be like this in real life because 
he again to your point he's so natural with it so I, I thought he was he was funny in a way to me that Connery wasn't funny you know yeah I like the way that Roger Moore's Bond was able to he was able to like reset himself mm-hmm. um, for example when he goes into the fillet of soul you know he's he looks sharp he's dressed to the nines and the entire establishment all of all of whom are 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 are, are black people you know it they stop talking and then they look mm-hmm. at him, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd like to think that part of this, part of that was, what is this white man doing here? And the other part is, damn, he, I wear that suit. He's sharp. Right. As they used to say, he's sharp. Yeah. Um, I didn't, you know what? I didn't to answer my own question. I didn't get a sense of danger from him in the way, definitely not in the way that I got from Connery. I mean, if you remember Dr. No, when he killed, um, uh, I forgot the name of the, the character's name, but he was sitting, you know, Connery was waiting for the guy to arrive. And then when the guy arrives, he's sitting on the bed and Connery has the gun pointed at him. The guy tries to shoot Connery and Connery just blasts his cat, you know, mm-hmm. I think three or four times very coolly. And just he had a mm-hmm. deadliness to him that you don't get from Roger Moore. And I'm not criticizing Roger Moore. I think it's it's fine that he didn't have that because he had he had other things to compensate. He brought other things to the role. But the bond in this film and live and let die um, I never got an assassin vibe from him. I got more of an investigative vibe from him. Like he was investigating and mm-hmm, he would mm-hmm. report back and maybe they would send somebody else to kill somebody. You know, um, that's the vibe I got from him. Um, but he was he was cool. He was funny. He was, you know, very relaxed with him, with himself. He always he felt like he owned every room, even when he walked into the flare soul. Like you said, he was very much a fish out of water, but he still felt comfortable, you know, in, in yeah. within himself. Um, one of my favorite scenes is the glider scene when he's up above the boat um, and he's, he's smoking you know, he's a cigar. Mm-hmm. He's smoking a cigar, looking cool as fuck. He's like, mm-hmm. he's monitoring the situation, and then he just flicks the cigar away, just real smoothly. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite scenes in the film, um, and I think it epit- it's one of my favorite Roger Moore scenes, you know, as, as Bond. Um, cause it just epitomizes that cool that we've kind of, we've kind of associated for decades with the Bond brand. So overall, um, I would give, I would give Bond a pretty high ranking in this film. There was some, the fighting sequences, you know, and that's more so of a guy Hamilton or whoever, you know, choreographed the fight scenes. Some of the fighting sequences were like, ah, whatever, you know, I'm, we just kind of take it at face value that Bond is just, you know, mm-hmm. a skilled fighter. Um, there were some, his, you know, his dealings with Solitaire and with uh, Rosie Carver, I felt were almost, uh, I hate to use the word because it's so overused. I wish I had a more sophisticated word for it, but creepy a little bit, you know, because yeah. it was like mm-hmm. he very much, um, you know, forced himself, you know, especially with Solitaire and with actually and with Rosie, because it was very much a, you know, um, oh, we got time to kill. What are we going to do? And he puts his hands on his sh- her shoulders and brings yeah. her close. It was like Bond is really he's lecherous in this film in a way that he we saw it in Thunderball. We saw it in Golden Goldfinger. Um, he can be that way. And it's, it's, you know, again, looking at it from our vantage point now, it's even more uncomfortable. But I got to imagine that there were some people in 1973. We try to sometimes we try to act like. In these different time periods, no one was of a different state of mind, which is untrue. Right, right. I'm sure somebody in 1973 was watching this and be like, damn, this motherfucker really is just forcing himself on these mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part of him was it stood out to me. Um, but overall, 
I have to give him a high rating as Bond, you know, the way Bond performed in this film. You know, he 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 was a he wasn't necessarily a spy, but he was a detective in this film. He um, even though <laughs> getting with the getting with the whatever female was closest to him, that was his primary objective at times. Mm-hmm. He stayed on the case, you know, and he tracked down Kananga um outwitted some at some certain points in the story outwitted the uh the the, the quote-unquote villains um so I, I don't know i have to give him a pretty high rating uh would you so you your rating is pretty high bond in this movie. my rating is pretty high too but i do want to ask you because it because it's something that really bothered me i understand why it went down but it did bother me just the same how mm. did you feel about um the the stepping away from the the usual, uh, as you would call them, tropes. I mean, for example, um, he orders a bourbon to drink. He doesn't order a martini that's shaken and not stirred. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't see him drive a car. We see an action mm-hmm. sequence that involves a boat. Mm-hmm. That I and I actually like the boat boating sequence, mm-hmm. given the given the terrain of the canals of Louisiana. But um, you you we've known Bond to drive an Aston Martin doesn't happen here we've known right. bond to have his signature drink you know doesn't mm. doesn't happen here um his gun is different mm. did any of that take away from no from the I, nature of james bond the character no again again I'm, I'm thinking about this looking at this you know had i seen this had i had i been alive in 1973 had been a movie going age and been a bond fan if i stepped in the theater and saw this would I have been thrown by those things that are familiar to me or that I associate with Bond, those things being absent to the point where Q wasn't even in the movie, you know, Mm -hmm. Q is mentioned, but he's not even in the film. This is the first time this happened. Um, Would that have thrown me? I don't know. I, but I say that I, you know, looking at the series in its entirety now and then plucking this film out and looking at it and saying, okay, does that bother me that the tropes are not, you know, um, in this film, no, because I, I think about it in the same way I do as like Casino Royale or Quantum Solace. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it took a while to build up for Daniel Craig's bond to stand on his own. They stripped those things away and then it took a while for those things to gradually come back um, until, you know, what, you know, in, in Skyfall, we get a lot of them all at the same time. Um, and matter of fact, in Casino Royale, some of them were used subversively, you know, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to, you know, give me a vodka martini? Do you want to shake and stir? And he's like, stir it. And he's like, do I look like I give a damn? You know, and it's like, mm-hmm, so the, mm-hmm, those things mm-hmm. were used. So it doesn't bother me as long as, um, and, and, you know, we know that Roger Moore, eventually all those tropes came back, except for, I don't think he ever smoked a cigarette. I think he always stayed with the cigars. Um, and did, I don't know, did he ever drive his Aston Martin? Um, no, I think he had that mm-hmm. Lotus and he had, he had uh, Lotus. He had a, did he have a Bentley? He had something, Lotus and something else. But we saw him adapt more of the Bond tropes. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't bother me in this film because I think it gave him an opportunity to create, you know, carve out some space away mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Um, Connery, away from Lazenby, and, you know, put his own signature on it. And it worked. So you're it saying worked. some of those things are re- really crutches, particularly for a new character. I think it, it, it can be, I think it, not necessarily for the actor, for the writer, I think, and the All director, right. I All think right. it can be, whereas it's like, you know, let's insert this here because this is what's supposed to be here rather than let's figure out something new to say. 
um, you know, that may fit this character a little better. You gave room for Roger Moore to be funnier, you know, than you did. Had you had you if you forced some of the more Connery things on him. And to be fair, I think maybe some of the um, his dealings with women in this film didn't fit Roger Moore the way that they fit Connery. You know what I'm saying? He didn't handle mm-hmm. them as well. Maybe that's part of what was even more uncomfortable about it. Um, so, but some of the other things they didn't force on Roger Moore, it gave him room to be more, to bring what he wanted into the role. Right. And it worked. He did six more after this. You know what I'm saying? So it, it worked. Mm-hmm. He became a very successful Bond. So yeah, right. it didn't bother me. Did it bother you? Um, I missed it. You did miss it. Okay. I missed it. All right. okay. Um. I suppose that if I had taken it now, okay, so let me say this, let me say this. My first entry into, into the world of James Bond was the spy who loved me. He didn't drive an Aston Martin. He drove a Lotus, but there were other elements that were there. Mm. Jaws, for example, neutral. Yeah. yeah, But Jaws is new. I'm saying, well, Jaws is new, but he still is of the, as of the pedigree of, of odd job. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I can't necessarily say that I missed certain things, mm. but looking at this the glaring, other week, you, glaringly yeah. obvious, let's say, you know, right. So it was obvious. It was glaringly obvious the other week when you watched this. Yeah, okay. that's fair. That's fair. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, women versus villain. Okay. Um, so this is where we, you know, assess the bond women. We assess the bond villain or villains. Um, and we say, you know, who do we appreciate more? Who who impacted us more? Was it the women or the villain in this film? So on the on the I want to run down this list really quickly on the Bond women side. I have Miss Caruso, um, who was at the beginning of the film in bed with uh, Bond when we first meet uh, Roger mm-hmm. Moore's James Bond. Mm-hmm. Rosie Carver, the CIA under the CIA agent assigned by Felix Leiter to help Bond. And then, of course, Solitaire. Um, and then on the villain side, I have Mr. Big, Dr. Kananga. Um, and then these are villains, but more like henchmen, but we'll kind of list them anyway. Teehee, uh, Baron Samity and Whisper. Is that who mm-hmm. you have? Uh, yeah. Um, although I kind of have to give a shout out to, uh, Mrs. Bell, the, the student pilot. That <laughs> <laughs> you want to list her as an honorary bond woman? <laughs> I got to put it. Yeah. I got to put it down as an honorary bond woman. She had absolutely no impact in the story, but right. she did have you know, funny lines and the, oh shit. She went with it. Yeah. 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 Uh, or the holy shit, I think she said. So what? Um, all right. So who, how do you rate the Bond women or who who had the more most impact on you, the women or the villain? In this film? The villains. The villains. OK, why? Big time. They are memorable. I mean, Kananga, I, you know, I I look at a character, say, like a Lashif to Yafikoto's portrayal of Kananga. He was a megalomaniac. And I, I just I just felt that Kodo's presentation of the character was very intelligent. Mm-hmm. And he even his relationship with with Solitaire, that was a very dominant, um, oppressive kind of relationship. There was also an, a, a, an undercurrent of of caring like he cared for for Solitaire. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, in a very you know twisted way, um, but there was a certain sensitivity that that he exposed, um, where he showed pain at her betrayal, um, and um, I think it genuinely 
you know, hurt him that he felt that he needed to kill Solitaire at the end, you mm-hmm. know, masking in a way that as if he did not care. And if you look at the way that Kananga plays, uh, as Yafet Koto plays Kananga at the end of the film, mm-hmm. it's very different than any other time that he plays him. Yeah, that, you know, was, he's very that was interesting to me. Yeah. He would, you know, it was almost like he had, I don't know, go ahead. I, I have a thought on that, but go ahead. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was very cynical. Like, he really didn't care about any of these people. Mm. But all the time before that, you know, he was very calculating, very protective of her, wanting to make sure that she was all right, wanting to, you know, control all these, you know, all of these pieces. Um, whereas at the end of it, because he'd been hurt, because all of this, all of his plans had been thwarted, you know, um, you know, he was, he was, he was, you know, almost carefree, almost manical in mm-hmm. terms of how, how he was behaving. Mm-hmm. He, it, it felt, if I agree with everything you just said, he also felt as if, um, he had won. Like at that point he felt like I won, you know, mm-hmm. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the point when Bond is, you know, like you said, it's the end of the film there and there, the underground layer, which was dope by the way, had the little mm-hmm. monorail and everything. <clears throat> yeah. Um, he felt like I've won, you lost, you know, and that's where that that's where the attitude that you just described, that's where that came from. You know, like, I okay. don't care about anybody. I'm on top of the world now. And mm-hmm. he was laughing. And, so, and it was like, yeah, he was completely different because earlier in the film, he was he was almost really uptight earlier in the film. Like, yeah, you know, he, it was like by the end of the film, he was damn near the Joker. <laughs> yeah. And it was like earlier he was kind of to the point where that one scene where they're like reporting back to him, you know, bond and solitaire or sneaking around and he's doing paperwork or whatever. And he's just kind of like, you know, as an aside, he's like, listen, if he finds it, talking about the drugs, he finds the drugs, kill him. And that was mm-hmm. it. You know? And it was just like, mm-hmm. he, he was very kind of like uptight and just like tense, you know, the whole mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And at the end of the film, he feels more like, it feels like to me, like he felt I've won. So now I can let loose and fuck all of y'all. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's kind of how it was. You know, that's, yeah. that's the vibe I got from him, which to me was work. I mean, Yafet Koda is a, is a phenomenal actor, you know, so it was like all through the movie, he was giving a really measured and um, intentional performance. Um, and then it kind of, he intentionally let it unwind at the end. He unwound mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was really effective. I think my favorite scene was the interrogation scene where they're at the long table Bond is is caught. Uh, Tihi Kananga's main henchman has Bond's pinky finger, you know, in his in his metal prosthetic, ready to just snap it off if mm. Solitaire can't predict the answer to the question that Kananga is going to, you know, ask her. Mm-hmm. And she fails. You know, mm-hmm. she 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 the answer that she gives, Kananga says, you know, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Bond is taken away, and then it's revealed, and Solitaire already knew that, or maybe she didn't, but, you know, it's revealed to Solitaire that, look, I gave you every chance. You you are a mile away. It was like a 50-50 shot, and yeah. you weren't even close. Yeah, which was surprising me. He didn't just go ahead and take Bond's finger off, you know, but. Yeah. Or kill her on the spot. Yeah, yeah. That was interesting. Because yeah. at that point, he knew that she was of no use to him moving forward. Mm-hmm. So why didn't he kill him? He, he, why didn't he kill her? Mm-hmm. He did not because he cared. And he needed to let her know how hurt that he was. <laughs> this, you've, you've wounded me. So now I'm going to smack you around a little bit because I'm the villain. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 But yeah, that's, that fit his character. So I, 
I and okay, so give give me your thoughts really quickly though on the henchmen before before I give you my my rating or my my thoughts on women versus a villain. Um, you well, liked all of them. I, yeah, I did. I did like I did like all of them. I gotta say my my favorite uh, my favorite henchman was Whisper. I do I do like Tehe Johnson. Tehe is a he's a he's a little over the top. I do feel that he comes from that same kind of odd job vein where he's very dangerous with this metal prosthetic that he somehow somehow controls um, mm-hmm. and winds up to be the uh, agent of his demise also. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Tihi is uh, um, the prototype for Jaws, particularly mm-hmm. that last scene, that fight scene in the train, in the, in the, in, uh, on the yeah, train yeah, yeah. in the cabin. Right. Um, the, the, that, that scene, which is played out in The Spy Who Loved Me, I think is better executed. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, nonetheless, yeah. I like Tihi and um, what the exchange between Tihi and Bond at the crocodile farm that happens as well when Tihi explains. To oh Bond yeah, that yeah, that was a nice little conversation. Yeah, they had the little walk they had. Mm-hmm. It was like the little conversation they had as they're walking. I thought, which you know, it's always interesting in a Bond film. It's like they want to kill him, but instead of just shooting him, they got to go through some elaborate ass, you know, some elaborate you know uh situation with all these moving parts and machinations to like yeah. just just shoot them you know but yeah right. so they take them out to the uh farm the crocodile farm and leave them on the little island or whatever which was i mean i'm not complaining the scene was really great um but yeah i think that that whole execution of that the conversation that they had was great and it really revealed a lot about Tihi. Oh, they'll eat anything even each other then again, sometime they can go a whole year without eating. <laughs> there are two ways to disable a crocodile, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I don't suppose you care to share that information with me? Well, one way is to take a pencil and jam it in the depression hole behind his eye. And the other? Oh, the other's twice as simple. You just put your hand in his mouth and pull his teeth out. <laughs> Honorable mention to the funeral procession as uh, uh, assassins. <laughs> the entire procession. <laughs> yeah, because you notice the second time that it happened, it was the exact same people. It was the exact <laughs> so same people. Everybody was there on time. They reset the whole thing. <laughs> Very well executed. <laughs> wow. Wow. The whole, the whole procession of assassins. So um, I, I just think the, yeah, I just think that the villains overall were much more uh, um, organized and and you know and memorable mm-hmm. than the women were what did you think very quickly we're running a little bit behind so just really quickly we got to mention this cat what did you think about sheriff jw pepper who takes over the movie for a good 10 minutes what did you think about him um i i thought that he was ultimately unnecessary mm-hmm. um it reminded me of uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice from the Smokey and the Bandit mm, series. Yeah, yeah. And Which Jackie came Gleason. After this, right? Yeah, it came after this. And, yeah. you know, Jackie Gleason did that much, much better. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was it was fine. He, you know, I mean, you kind of you did need him from the standpoint of building the action sequence with the boats. Mm. Um, but. I, you yeah. know, I thought he for for one, if I was a racist redneck, you know, uh, southern cop, I'd be very offended 
at the uh, stereotypical portrayal of my people. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you? Some kind of doomsday machine boy? Well, we got a cage strong enough to hold an animal like you here. Captain, would you enlighten the sheriff, please? Yes, sir. J.W., let me have a word with you. Now, this fellow's from London, England. He's an Englishman working in cooperation with our boys, a sort of secret agent. Secret agent? On whose side? He would have been fine for like one scene, but I just felt, man, they just, it just, it was too much. And it was like, and you know, I, I know there's some people who love this character and there's some people who feel, I think the majority of people will probably feel like us. Like it was, it was just too much. It was, it took away from it to the point where I was like, damn, for a minute, this doesn't feel like a Bond film. And matter of fact, where is Bond? Like I haven't seen him in a few minutes, you know, it's yeah. like, this is this high speed chase. Yeah. And I've been having all these, this extended scenes with this, you know, extraneous character who has just got these one line one liners that would have been funny for like, you know, 20 seconds, but now it's been 10 minutes, you know, and it's like, it's just too much. Um, so, but I, I just wanted to mention him real quick. So, okay. Really, again, we're a little bit behind. So I'm going to run through my list really quickly though. Women versus villain. To me, I, I agree with you. It's the villains, but just to talk about the, the, and I'm not going to really talk about the villains because I think I agree with everything you said, but just talk about the women for a second, the bond women, um, Rosie Carver. Now, yeah. There have been many. She's let's just put it on the table. She was written as a complete, like just scatterbrain. Yes, you know, terrible, terrible agent. I don't know how the hell she's a. You know, it's just horrible as far as her capabilities. You know, in, mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention that she was a double agent. You know, she's working for for Kananga. But I think what this what bothered me about the portrayal of this character is that when we are talking about quote unquote representation. If you don't have, and this was the first time that Bond had a black Bond girl, you know, Bond woman in the film. Yeah. This is the first yeah. time. Um, and matter of fact, I read that in some countries, I believe in South Africa at the time, they wouldn't, they cut out when they, when the, when the movie was played in South Africa, they cut out the scenes between him and Rosie, the love scenes, because interracial, you know, um, mm-hmm. relations were out, were outlawed, you know. So mm-hmm. this was, this is 1973. So this was the first time, though, Bond was on screen with a black woman. And because this was the first real, you know, a, you know, substantial um, Bond woman who was black, you expect, because again, there was there were there have been ditzy, you know, underwritten, poorly written Bond women before, mm-hmm. um, and there would be more afterwards. But for the first black one to be written so poorly and to be portrayed so poorly, mm-hmm. that's where I have a problem at. You know what I'm saying? She, you didn't have to make her superwoman. You know what I'm saying? She didn't have to be Jinx, you know, from Die Another Day, where it's like she's mm-hmm, there somebody, mm-hmm. let's give her her own spinoff, you know, whatever. It didn't have to be that way. But I feel that there should have, she should have been more, they should have taken more care in that, you know, and like, okay, this is the first time we've done this. We need to make sure that we, you know, we're representing this in a very um, conscientious, conscientious and very, um, make her just just make her a more a better character i feel like they didn't take any care in that at all and so you had you know white screenwriters tom ankowitz i think he wrote it by himself Mm. um taken from you know drawn from ian fleming's material which god like i said god knows what that looks like and then (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and white director white producers you know no one was involved in this that was going to say you know what we maybe we should do and then you had again the exploitation 
you know. Yeah. So, but they didn't go for like a Pam Greer character. You know, what I'm saying you. it wasn't like they didn't. And they didn't. Somebody could have seen Pam. Coffee. That was right. <laughs> somebody <laughs> right. could have seen Coffee. That's all I'm they saying. They didn't do that. They didn't mm-hmm. do that. They went for this kid. They created this character who screams at the sight of a, a dead snake. You know, um, right. screams at the sight of a hat on her bed. Um, who almost killed Coral. You know, what I'm saying because mm-hmm. he. You know, she. It, it was just. It, she was just very poorly written. And I can't really fault necessarily Gloria Hedry, I think, who played the role. Mm-hmm. But it was just there was nothing there to work with. And that bothered me. So anyway, Solitaire, I thought, was 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 great. Although, again, I've already mentioned kind of like the dynamic between her and Roger, who I think Roger Moore is substantially older than her as well. Jane Seymour was very young. I think she mm-hmm. was I don't know how old she was, but she was extremely young in this movie. Um, and then Miss Caruso, who I, I, I really like Miss Caruso in the beginning of the film. So I like the Bond women, but the failure that they that of of the producers and the writers and the director with Rosie Carver and some of the other things, the the villains were just much better. So I got to give it to the villains in this film. So I think we're we're united on that. So any before we before we go into Q and A, any last words on Live and Let Die? Where does this rank? Where does this movie rank for you? Like in your bond fandom i mean is this very like top 10 top five or bottom? I, yeah or i mean i would put i would put it in i would put it in my top 10 um it it's um i you know i think what the saving grace for me in live and let die is dr kananga is yafit koto mm-hmm. i think i think he's the one that keeps the film interesting because of of his acting mm-hmm. and he you know the scenes with him and Roger Moore are are you know they're they're how do how would you say it I mean you know they're they're at peer level yeah you know level I mean they're like yeah. they're like acting you know yeah, they're, they're, um, they're they're they have great chemistry and Yafa Koto is just he's great you know he's he had very subtle expressions. I mean, Roger Moore did too. I mean, one of my favorite scenes is Roger Moore reacting to um, Solitaire, you know, after they've made love and Solitaire is lamenting the facts that now she, she's explaining to him that, you know, now that I've, my virginity is gone, mm-hmm. I've lost my powers. And she's explaining to him in a very, you know, esoteric type way. And Roger Moore is just like rolling his eyes. He's just like, what the fuck? Is this yeah. Boy? And it's hilarious. Which is to me, it's like completely authentic. It's like, OK, come back, come back to the light. <laughs> right. just don't, you know, I I, was, I, I kind of stacked the deck against you. <laughs> right. It was you hilarious. In, the but, in the first place. Yeah, but so yeah. He, he had a lot of those, and then Yafa Koto had a lot of those moments too, where he was just the expressions that he gave, um, you know, as he was being told information or mm-hmm. whatever. He, he he was really good in this movie, man. He's good in a lot of pretty much everything he does, but he's done. But that, you know, I agree with you. Um, he really shined in this movie. We didn't even mention Joffrey Holder as Baron as Baron Samiti. Um, yeah, he freaked me out, bro. <laughs> yeah, that lie. he did. He did. It was very well. Um, yeah, Baron Samiti is actually a, a character in Haitian uh, mm. voodoo. Uh, mm. He is one of the, um, I, I pray I don't pronounce this incorrectly, but Captain Samiti is one of the Lua uh, or an intermediary between the supreme creator and humanity. Um and it is said that, you know, of course, he he cannot die. And I think that's the key to, I don't know about the key why you see him actually close the film out, 
by sitting on the at the at the front of the engine. <laughs> Very weird. Outside yeah. the engine. <laughs> you know, just, just riding. <laughs> right. Right. Very, Very weird. It was kind of like, know, okay, does that are we are they saying yeah that the shit was real and that's you know in the Bond universe it's actually or at least in this film you know the 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 magic that you see is the occult is real. Um, yeah, but they don't saying. really they don't make that connection. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. you know in the film, you just think he's a guy who you know plays this character, and it's it's not it's very, weird. Yeah, I, I wonder. You know what, man? I wonder if they remade Live and Let Die now, mm-hmm. if this would be a better movie. I, I mean, we so. could easily say yes because of the the altering of how black characters are portrayed. I mean, that would be an order of magnitude better all by mm. itself but to be able to have the technology to represent Samiti and well i think i think that this, this backstory I'm, I'm 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 trying to i'm going a little bit on some knowledge that i think i remember reading but i'm not 100 percent sure but i think this draft like this script went through many many drafts mm. and i think mm. some of those things some of the imbalances that we see like you know why did this happen why you know why at the airport when solid when you know bond makes his getaway before he meets mrs bell solitaire kind of just like freaks out and is like you know turns you know turns on him and it's like was that her like trying to help him get away or does she act things like that happen throughout the film and it's like they're not really explained and i think that that's kind of like a result of the draft, you know, the script going through so many drafts. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I think if they started, if they remade this film now and really, you know, it didn't go through some of those production issues, um, I think it would be a tighter and a better script and we would have a more, we'd have an understanding of whether, whether they're, they were asserting that Baron Samity and, you know, everything that was represented in the film, are they saying that that was real or wasn't, it was, you yeah. know, are they just playing with our heads a little bit? I think we'd have a little bit of a better, um, more clarity around that. All right. But overall, man, I think, you know, the it's funny because I grew up just to answer my own question again. I grew up, um, you know, Roger Moore was my first James Bond. You mm-hmm. know, he was, you know, at, when I was very, very young, I became I think it was around for your eyes only. Um, that became like the first Bond film that I became like conscious of. And Roger Moore was James Bond. Yeah. But I've, as I've said before on this show. Pierce Brosnan was really like the character that I became like, I was like, I like Bond, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I really kind of like took Roger Moore for granted. He was just kind of there, but I wasn't really into mm-hmm. Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that looking back on this film, if I, with this being my top five, all Bond of, you know, top five Bond films of all time, not probably not. I don't even know if it'd be in my top 10, but it's not necessarily a, um, looking down on the film or a, uh, a negative, you know, commentary on the film. It's just that it's hard for me to put this one in context of everything else I like about Bond because yeah. I'm so distant from this, you know? Yeah. I will say this as far as I think, I think Roger Moore, this is definitely one of his best Bonds. I think he's great as Bond in this film. I think mm-hmm. he gets even better, like in Spy Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this film is important and we wanted to talk about it, not only because of the relevance of um of black characters in it but also because this was a huge shifting moment for the bond franchise um i i I don't think it's it's not um hyperbolic to say that if this film would have gone wrong you know Mm -hmm, this film mm -hmm. would have failed who knows what would happen in the franchise who knows if the franchise would have continued you know if they Mm -hmm, failed like mm -hmm. miserably after sean connery that might have been it you know who knows so all right so let's wrap this up in grand fashion um this is what the what the listeners have been waiting for 
the return of Q&A, the return of Q- question to Arthur. <laughs> so really quickly, this is what we do with this segment. Um, I'm going to ask Arthur three trivia questions based on the film. Um, in this case, Live and Let Die. Arthur gets 25 points for each question he answers correctly. Listeners should play along and keep track of their own score after we review the final film in this series of 007 and counting. Um, We can all tally up our scores and see how we, you know, we can discover our own level of bond unrealness. Um, I think last time you did, I have to, you know, for the next episode, I have to dig up your score from like the first run of this that we did in 2020. Um, Because like I said, you started off strong, but then. Um, I got stronger. So <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> are you ready? You ready for today's this uh, episode's segment of Q&A question and Arthur? All right. Yes. First question. I'm going to tell you right now, one of these questions is a layup because you've already answered it. And I was going to you answered it as we were talking about the ep- uh, the film. Yeah. And I was going to rewrite it real quickly and do another. But I said, you know mm-hmm. what? I'm going to play fair. I prepared these before the show, so I'm going to stick to what I've got on paper here. So one of these you should definitely get because you've already answered it. But um, it's not the first one. So first question. The Bond woman, I'm going to repeat these twice, and then you can give me your answer. The Bond woman at the start of the film was involved in Bond's mission immediately prior to the events of Live and Let Die. In what a European city did this mission take place? I'm going to repeat that again. The Bond woman at the start of the film was involved in Bond's mission immediately prior to the events of Live and Let Die. In what a European city did this mission take place? Rome. Yes. And you're looking at the screen really hard. You're not... You're not Wikipedia over there, are you? No. Because <laughs> you're looking at the screen really intensely, and then I see your eyes moving a little bit. So you're not you're not reading anything, are you? No. You want me to share no, my screen? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I, I trust you. Yo. You know, you're my brother from another mother. I trust you. So if you are cheating, that'll be on your conscience. Mm. All right. So Rome. Yes, Rome is the answer. Miss Caruso, um, who is, uh, for bonus points, she is a member of what intelligence agency? Do you remember? The government? I'll give you a hint. I mean, I don't know the name of it, but the Italian government, I'll yeah, guess that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So she, because remember, M comes in. Because, you know, the first time I saw this, I was like, why is he hiding this female from M? Like, M knows, you know, he's, in a, he's a grown ass man. M knows yeah. he's. But yeah. then it hit me, oh, when M goes into the um, the kitchen and he says, you know, she's they've, missing the Italian government. They've lost their agent. Right. Do you have any idea where she is? That's why he's hiding. I got to say, though, really quickly, I really I meant to mention this earlier. I really liked seeing Bond's flat. Yeah, that was the first time we've seen it since Dr. No. And they didn't spend much time in there in Dr. No. And I don't know if we see it again until Spectre. Um, I don't know. I don't think we do. I don't think we do. But this was cool. I mean, it was expensive. I mean, he's making he's making what he's making a cappuccino for him. Yeah, he got that cappuccino machine. And Emma's like, does it do anything else? Because it looks hella complicated. Um, but it was just cool to see him like, you know, it wasn't a big reveal, which was odd because it's like, you know, usually a new bond gets a big reveal. But it was interesting just to see him in his in his crib, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like, wow, that's where Bond lives. And it looks it looked very much like a, someplace Roger Moore would live, you know, wood panels, ancient, you know, photos up. Um, it was like a little it looked like a little one bedroom, like bungalow almost or something. Yeah. Um, but that was cool. All right. So anyway. 
uh, viewers or listeners, um, the answer to the first question was Rome. So give yourself. What's the name of the agency, though? Um, I don't know the exact name of the agency. The oh. question was <laughs> the bonus. The, the bonus question was what country? I meant. I meant to say what country? You know, was she a agent? Oh, for? okay, it was, okay, okay. It was Italy. So yeah, um, we'll find out. Somebody else out there already knows the name of the Itali- the intelligence service for the the Italian intelligence service. Um, but you get twenty five points for that question, Arthur, because you answered it correctly. Um, Rome was the correct answer. All right, number two. And this is the one you better get because you already answered it. Um, but listeners, you, you if you weren't listening to us closely, you may not get it. Um, but Arthur, you should get this. There are several things the filmmakers did to give Roger Moore's bond his own identity. For instance, although Connery's bond famously drank vodka martinis, what did Moore's bond routinely order throughout Live and Let Die? What drink did he routinely routinely order? Right, I'm, I'm going to repeat that one more time for the listeners. Question number two, there are several things the filmmakers did to give Roger Moore's Bond his own identity. For instance, although Sean Connery's Bond famously drank vodka martinis, what did Moore's Bond routinely order throughout Live and Let Die? Arthur Turnbull. Bourbon. How could you not get? Yes, that is right. (laughs) (laughs) That is right. Yes. Bourbon whiskey. He ordered it first, I think, in the filet of soul, told the brother he wanted it neat. The brother was like, what? <laughs> he was like, no ice. <laughs> and the brother was like, that's going to be extra. It takes it costs extra for us not for no to put ice. ice in there. <laughs> and then sits him in a booth. Bond asks him for information, offers him some money. Brother takes the money and the takes drink the as Bond turns. <laughs> He's in, a, he's, up, in a, he's in a he's in a rotating booth. <laughs> just sticking with stereotypes for a minute. Is that not? Doesn't that sound like a black establishment, like on South Side or somewhere? Like we're gonna charge you extra not to put ice in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because our bartender he's used to pouring ice in there. So now that he doesn't have to do that, it's gonna, right. It's like it's gonna cost extra to get that through his mind. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's gonna be extra. So that's that is service in the hood. Um, all right. Question number three. I didn't take it easy on you on this one. Let's see how close you were paying attention. Mm. So you get another 25. So you two out of two so far. You got 50 points, 50 out of 50 so far. Question number three. There are three numbers on the back of Solitaire's cards, her tarot cards. What are they? Answer to ask this one more time. <laughs> if y'all can see the look on Arthur's face right now. <laughs> Arthur kind of looked like uh, Kananga after he got that thing shoved <laughs> in his mouth at the end of the film. <laughs> got that gas pellet shoved in his mouth. Arthur looked like that for just a second. Y'all should have seen that. Um, all right. So question number three, one more time. I told you I'm not going to take it easy on you. This, it's kind of a trick question, though, but I'm gonna, just 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 think about this for a minute. Question number three. There are three numbers on the back of Solitaire's tarot cards. What are they? Three six nine. Is that your final answer? Yeah. Are you sure that's your final answer? That's my final answer. All right. That is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Listeners, there are three numbers on the back of Solitaire's tarot cards. What are they? What are three famous numbers in the Bond franchise, Arthur? What are the oh, most three numbers? Zero zero what seven. 
thank you. You don't get 25 points. <laughs> that was that was too late. <laughs> the correct answer is 007. If wow. You look at her cards, her stack of cards. For some reason, I don't know why they made this choice because it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. Why would she have a stack of cards with 007 on them? But if you look at her stack of cards, her tarot cards, the 007 design is all on the back of her cards. It's really crazy. But yes. Wow, I did minus. not notice that. That is a mind. I'm not giving you no points on that one. So you get zero. Listeners, if you got that correct, you get 25 points. And actually give yourself a pat on the back because that was not yeah. an easy question. Um, that wasn't an easy question. So, But this is Q&A. This is how we roll on Mad Unreal, Question, and Arthur. So you got 50 points out of a possible 75. Not bad. Not bad. If this was a report card, you wouldn't be on punishment or nothing. Um, you just yeah. wouldn't be getting like, you know, ice cream or anything like that. Yeah. Um, that was a good last question because, I mean, it was it was obvious. It was accessible. It was like if you really thought about it, you would have been like, wait a minute, because the answer was right there. Three numbers. Like, what are the th- most? It's like if you had to guess, I mean, damn, let me just say 007. I mean, those are the only three numbers, you know, whatever. So, yeah, it was kind of it was a hard question, but the answer was kind of in the question, too. So all good that's but I, that's one of the reasons i didn't change the bourbon question because it was like i knew there was a hard one coming mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know you had already answered the bourbon question 30 minutes ago but i left it in there so but anyway 50 out of 75 so if you keep that up um your score will be pretty decent by the end of this 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 run but i think you're gonna have to get at least one you got to get like a full sweep at least one episode where you get all three correct um like you did last time so that is it, though, for uh, Live and Let Die. Any other thoughts, questions, comments, whatever on Live and Let Die? I know we want to hear from the listeners as well. Uh, no, I think we uh, I think we covered everything. A fun movie to watch. You just you just have to not believe what you're looking at on the screen <laughs> as actually have had happen. <laughs> yeah, I think at you know all. it's interesting for some people who poor bond fans i wonder if after they watch this movie if it actually opened them up to other black exploitation things like will they go watch coffee will they go watch um shaft you know if they've mm-hmm. never seen it before um that would be interesting to see that in reverse you know what i'm saying as yeah. far as like you know see go through bond and then go to these other movies and see oh that's where they got that that stuff from and, and living like yeah die. but yeah um, it's worth watching to see the debut of roger moore because he is he is quite good uh, and definitely to see uh, Yafikoto. Absolutely. And shout out to the um, Live and Let Die poster, like we were talking about before we recorded. Um, this was the start of a lot of great Roger Moore posters. You know, Live and Let Die, Octopussy, View to a Kill. I mean, these are like iconic, you know, Roger Moore posters. So, For Your Eyes Only. Um, yeah, great posters. An era that is long gone. <laughs> Poster era. All right, we will return um, shortly. Next week, we're coming back with another yep. 007 and counting. I don't know. Let's wait. I guess maybe let's wait a few days. Maybe we'll announce it on Twitter what the show is going to, you know, which movie we're going to reveal. Or maybe we'll just, it'll be a surprise. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we're going to, we're not going in chronological order. We're going in any order we feel. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what next Friday's episode is about. But another 007 and counting is coming. So uh, we would like to hear from you. About your favorite moments of Live and Let Die, where it rates uh, for you, both as a Roger Moore Bond film and the the Bond franchise overall, reach out to us on Twitter. Use the hashtag MadUnreal. 
My name is Arthur. My Twitter handle is A-R-R-T-H-U-R-R. You can find me, Isaac Perry, at at Isaac Perry, I-S-A-A-C-P-E-R-R-Y, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, but please, we invite you to subscribe, follow Mad Unreal, both on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we are available in Spotify as well. Anywhere that fine RSS feeds are consumed. And we will see you next week. Peace. Keep it unreal. Peace.